This is the 16th episode of the 24-7 Muscle Podcast. I'm, as always, your host, Frieder. And let me start with the standard disclaimer that this podcast is independent of my research and teaching roles of Maastricht University. That reminds me of the fact that um, this disclaimer is not really valid anymore, uh, at least soon, as my contract at Maastricht University is running out in the middle of July. And I applied for postdoc grants and other positions now. So um, um, I hope that I have something positive and conclusive to announce for the next episode. So that's uh, my sincere hope. But I also can't promise anything at this stage. Anyway, today we will go right into the second part of the session with Jorn Trammell on pre-sleep protein ingestion and how it can influence muscle protein synthesis overnight after recovery from an endurance exercise bout. And in the first part that I hereby would really like to recommend you to listen first before going into this part, uh, we covered already concepts around muscle protein synthesis, how this is being measured in Jorn's research group. And we covered different types of proteins, we covered the pre-sleep protein literature, what is already known and what is special about the night period and with respect to muscle protein synthesis, what is already known in, in respect to that. And now in the second part, we will really go into the recent study published by Jorn and his group where they measured particularly mitochondrial protein synthesis after an endurance ex exercise bout, as mentioned before. And he will tell us about the, the findings from that study and the practical recommendations that evolve from that. And we will also then talk a little bit more about the translational perspective of how athletes and practitioners can use these findings um, in practice and also a more personal perspective, what Johan thinks where that research field is heading and what is up on the horizon for him and his interest in muscle protein synthesis. And now without further ado, we go right into the second part of the session with Johan Trommelin. With all the context that we have now, I think listeners will like to hear the actual study design of the pre-sleep protein um, trial that we are discussing now. So in, in a nutshell or in, in as many words as you think are necessary, what do you think is the most important things to mention about the study design? Yeah, so uh, well, the study was done in healthy, young, uh, in this case, uh, men. Um, they just had a well two days of standardized nutrition just to make sure that not one person was sky high in protein, another one very low. Uh, they weren't allowed to do any exercise the two days before, again, just to standardize everything. And then on the day of the test, um, they had uh, we provided them with all their meals, so a standardized breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, the dinner was at the university, so they got their uh, their dinner. And then I don't know the exact time frame, I think two or two and a half hours after dinner, they did an exercise session. Again, I don't know all the time frames, but let's say that dinner was around six. So then the exercise session, I think was a little bit earlier, then the exercise session would have been around uh, eight o'clock. 
then they uh, did one hour of uh, cycling and just an intensity was chosen to make sure that it was challenging because of course we want that the muscle needs to adapt to the training session and both the myofibular protein, but also the mitochondrial protein, which we were especially interested in in this study um, because it was endurance exercise. So something that hasn't been done that much. So one hour challenging, but it can't be that challenging that some people can't finish it because then you're comparing apples with origins, of course. So we needed an intensity that everyone can finish, but is challenging. So that was uh, 60% of their maximum workload. After that, all subjects got uh, a carbohydrate recovery drink. And the reason is what we discussed earlier, that the endurance crowd, they have pretty decent uh, sports nutrition guidelines from a fuel perspective. So they know the importance of carbohydrate recovery drinks for their glycogen. But protein supplementation use is relatively low. So Everything I've discussed so far, we've done similar studies in other populations, for example, in people who did one hour of resistance exercise at the same time of the day. In those studies, we've given a protein supplement immediately after that exercise, because that's what that crowd does. But in this study, an hour of endurance exercise, and then they got a carbohydrate recovery drink, and then about Two and a half hours later, just a little bit before midnight, they got one of three options. They either got 45 grams of casein protein, which is a slowly digestible milk protein. Uh, Option two was 45 grams of whey protein, which is a rapidly digestible milk protein or a placebo. So no protein. After that drink, they uh, were allowed to brush their teeth, etc. And then they went to bed. Then they slept for about seven to seven and a half hours until we woken them up. Maybe part to say, so uh, just before they got that drink and immediately when we woke them up, we took muscle biopsies to measure muscle protein synthesis. uh, And that was basically the end of the study. After the muscle biopsy in the morning, there were some other things like we gave them an ad libitum breakfast. So they had tons of foods to choose from and they could just eat as much as they wanted on one hand because well they just participated in a study so we're grateful for them on the other hand the day just begins so let's give them a breakfast so uh, they can do whatever they want to do but also because we were interested if you start giving people extra food for example pre-sleep maybe you start eating a lot less next morning you just compensate uh Uh, your nutrition the next morning. So that was uh, in a nutshell what we did. So a lot of standardization, then an hour of exercise, and then before midnight, either placebo, 45 grams of one protein or 45 grams of another protein. And then over that seven and a half hour period where the subject was sleeping, we measured muscle protein synthesis. Some details about that. So that requires those two muscle biopsies just before uh, bath and immediately upon awakening. Uh, it also requires uh, the infusion of what we discussed earlier, those labeled amino acids. You need to infuse them in your subject. That's yeah, a relatively simple uh, procedure. Subjects yeah, doesn't really affect the subject in normal conditions, but maybe we can come back why in sleep it's more challenging. Uh, and then you have to collect some blood samples uh, throughout the evening. That's about it.
few questions, of course, on, on that matter. So why did you choose to go for the dosage of 45 grams of whey and casein? What was the rationale behind that? Yeah, that was like a combination of two things. Um, so, well, okay, so let's let's go in a little bit more detail about something I mentioned earlier. I wasn't super excited about the first study that I was hired to do for my PhD. I really wanted to get in their group because they were like super good at sports nutrition, but I was like, Okay, I'm in, but it's not the study that I was hoping for. And the reason is it was uh, a pre-sleep protein study, almost everything the same as in this study, except it was resistance training, uh, as, I, as I mentioned. Uh, and then they got either uh, a placebo or 30 grams of protein before sleep. But before that, they already did a study that was exactly the same, but has only difference 40 grams of protein before sleep. So I was like, we already know, and in that study, they saw an increase in muscle protein synthesis with the pre-sleep protein. So I'm like, the concept works. Maybe one more thing to add. So during the, of course, 99.99% of all these studies are done during the day. So we understand a lot of during the day, and there was no real reasons why we expected differences during the night, other than in the first study, we had some questions like, is the protein even being digested while you sleep? During the day, we have done what's called dose response studies. So you just give, uh, you just test out different doses and then you figure out how much protein do you need to get the maximum muscle protein synthetic response. And in healthy young people, whether they did exercise before or not, that's about 20 grams. So 20 grams of protein stimulates, uh, maximally stimulates muscle protein synthesis. So that's 20 gram in a single meal. Not not in the whole day, of course. So one data point that I had was, and that is something that's been repeated multiple times. So it was very clear from the literature, all you need in a single meal is 20 grams of protein. Then our own lab has shown that protein was properly digested and absorbed throughout the night and as a result stimulates overnight muscle protein synthesis. And they did that with a dose of 40 grams. So I'm like, okay, the pre-sleep protein is digested and absorbed. We know from a ton of studies that 20 grams is all that you need. Why, why, of course, this 30 grams is going to work. Like, why wouldn't it work? It's more than what you need. And we know there's nothing special about the night. Well, of course, I was wrong um, because <laughs> we saw no clear effect of that 30 grams of protein. And of course, in hindsight, you can often explain these things. But therefore, like the one lesson I learned there is you need to do a study. And once you have the results, you can think of it. And before it's just pure speculation, because there is something that's different in the pre-sleep studies than in the studies during the day. In the day, well, we go back to our meal pattern. In your breakfast, you eat and then you need to last, let's say, four, maybe five hours till you eat again. That's your lunch. And the same thing with your dinner. So that your meal frequency is every four to five hours during the day. So often these studies during the day measured muscle protein synthesis over like four hours. So it seems that all you need, like 20 grams of protein, maximally stimulate the muscle protein synthesis over four hours. But when you sleep, uh, well, in our studies, we we measured over seven and a half per, uh, seven and a half hours of sleep, but that's double the period. So you can't assume that, oh, the 20 grams is definitely going to be enough for that period. So now it seems 
you need more protein if you know you're not going to eat anytime soon after after that meal. But before we did that study with the 30 grams, I'm like, of course, it's more than 20. Maximal response, easy to predict. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a good lesson that no, you'll you almost always get surprised and the surprises give you like cool new insights. So in this study, we knew that uh, 30 grams wasn't enough. We knew that 40 grams was enough. We just happened to choose 45 grams because another study, well, at some point we were just designing several studies. And one of the studies was a dose response study during the day with different amounts of protein uh, after endurance exercise. And in that study, we tested 0, 15, 30 and 45 grams of protein. This 45 just corresponded with that 45. And we're like, okay, we do a dose response study during the day. And then we use the highest dose from that for this study. I think 40 grams would have given almost the same result as we had now with our 45. I just think probably needs to be a bit more than 30, but I don't think 45 is necessarily the magical number. And if you consume 37 and a half, then absolutely nothing will happen. It's not like an on and off switch. Yeah, but I think that gives listeners some estimate of well, at what numbers um, you should be to to be um, on, on the safe side during the night or to promote certain adaptations that we want to talk about now. So what were the results? So what were the effects of these different... Um, yeah, ingestion protocols. Yeah, so maybe uh, maybe to quickly mention the, the hypothesis. So, like we expected the protein to uh, to stimulate both myofibular protein synthesis, and we were hoping that it would stimulate mitochondrial protein synthesis. Although we didn't release, <laughs> we're so sure about it because most studies haven't found an effect of protein on mitochondrial protein. In fact, there's not a single study that has found an effect of protein after an exercise bout on mitochondrial protein synthesis. And that's a little bit what we discussed earlier, uh, which might be because it's a more delayed response. But we were like, well, we can measure it. So let's add it in the study. Hopefully uh, we learn something from it. But because there's a reason why we give two different proteins, one is fast digesting and the other one is slowly uh, digestible because from our earlier studies we already learned that hey the dose seems to be important because the night is typically quite long and uh, with a higher dose you make sure that you have protein throughout the whole night well that same principle applies with the digestion speed of protein so if you have a very rapidly digesting protein theoretically that's perfect during the daytime because at your breakfast, you get that big peak of amino acids coming in the blood. We discussed earlier, that's like a signal for your body. Okay, I can start building because I know a lot of amino acids are rushing into the body. Um, but again, theoretically, it might be the opposite during the evening. Uh, a slowly digestible protein that keeps providing amino acids throughout the entire evening might be a better choice than a rapidly digesting protein that just peaks in the beginning of the night and then uh, at the second half of the night, you're, you're yeah, out of fuel, so to speak. So in all our previous studies, we've just given, uh, well, the slowly digestible protein. Here we were interested to see, does the type of protein matter? The short answer is no, it didn't really seem to matter. So both types of protein were about equally effective at stimulating uh, muscle protein synthesis. 
And I think that comes because the rapidly digestible whey protein, um, because the dose was pretty high, it still supplied amino acids during most of the evening. So yes, it is absorbed quite rapidly, but it just takes a while before everything, just because the amount is so big, it just takes a whole while before your body has fully processed it. So if you give enough of rapidly digesting protein, it can still provide building blocks over a very long period. But to our surprise, we saw that not only the myto, uh, sorry, not only the myofibular, so the contractile protein synthesis was stimulated, but also the mitochondrial protein synthesis. And we think, and that was the first time that protein worked for this purpose after an exercise uh, session. And again, we think it might be the same reason as what we discussed earlier that when we do these overnight studies, we measure protein synthesis over a longer period than just the four-hour periods that you measure during the day. So if there's some truth to that speculation that the mitochondrial protein synthesis peaks later, the fact that we measured over a longer period and also our exercise session was a couple, what was well in the middle of the evening, not directly before the protein supplement. So our protein supplement was both delayed after exercise and we measured over a longer time frame. So the combination of those things is that just the timing of our amino acid availability, so to speak, better matched with the uh, the latency of the mitochondrial protein synthesis. Yeah, that's that's fully clear, and I think it's a good message practically that you don't have to worry about whether it's casein or or whey. Um, so that gets a little bit of stress of people of buying the different supplements for for different reasons. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. It's from the consumer point of view, you don't have to buy the different one because whey now seems to be perfect for well, both purposes. But the thing is also the casein protein is just much more unpractical because it just mixes way worse and water and all those other considerations. So yeah, whey just seems like a a very good, like it's a relatively cheap uh, protein. Like originally whey was considered a waste product from making cheese. You make cheese and then you are left with something and that happens to be whey. And now the dairy companies, whey is one of their best money makers, but it's still very cheap because they're making cheese and then they can sell the other stuff um, as well. But yeah, whey is just relatively cheap. You don't need other source, other things for other purposes. And it just it has good solubility. Like it, it has basically everything that that you want. I almost uh, know, like I'm I'm sounding like a salesman, but that's because I don't like all the other products that are more expensive, but are at best equally as good and usually worse than whey protein. And since I'm on this rant, I'm going to continue it with creatine. It's the exact same thing there. The cheapest creatine, creatine monohydrate, is the best. And if you uh, see more expensive products, they're they're worse. I won't go into why, but it's really with these supplements, the, the basics are actually better than the fancy marketed versions. Yeah, there, there we are already moving towards the translation to practice and practical recommendations. So next to what you just said, is, is there anything else that you think translates to the athlete's world or endurance um, athletes um, with respect to what they should do 
pre-sleep. So except for saying, okay, it doesn't matter, whey or casein, uh, 45 grams seem to work. Is, is there anything else that you would like to, to add in, in that respect? Um, well, if, if we look at practical things, when I, um, when I, when I speak on this topic, a lot of athletes have like certain worries on one hand, whether or not they do it wrong, well, whether or not they do it correctly, but also, uh, if there can be adverse side effects. So just to name uh, a few, we don't have to overcomplicate it. So again, the purpose of the pre-sleep protein is to provide building blocks throughout the evening for your muscle. So if you take your pre-sleep protein the second before you fall asleep, it's more likely that it will provide some amino acids throughout the whole evening than if you take your pre-sleep protein four hours before, of course, because at some point you're going to run out. But you don't have to worry, like, does it need to be two minutes before I go to bed? Uh, in our studies, it's like 20 minutes before because our subjects um, go brush their teeth, they text their girlfriend, et cetera, et cetera. So don't worry too much about uh, timing. Uh, if anything, you should worry more about the dose because the higher the dose, as we saw with the, the way, the higher your dose, that compensates for a lot of the timing effect because more protein just takes longer to, uh, to be cleared by the body. So don't stress too much about that. Another question that I often get is like, does it not have adverse effects on sleep quality, which is, I think, a good question. Well, I can't say no, but I can say is we have not seen adverse effects. Like in general, just this is very subjective, but our subjects just report to sleep pretty well, at least as good as you can expect to sleep on a university. Like it's not your own, uh, not your own bed, of course. And then we have various markers of sleep quality. Uh, for example, heart rate, um, we have used wrist actigraphy. So if you're awake, you just move your arms more. None of these are like gold standards for sleep quality. So I cannot exclude the possibilities that that sleep might be somewhat disrupted. But I'm pretty sure there's no gigantic bad effects. Otherwise, we would have seen it with our measurements uh, as well. So I'm not really concerned. Also, not just from the literature there's some studies that suggest that protein might be might improve sleep quality. There's also some studies suggest uh, no effect, and there's also some studies that suggest some detrimental effects. So it's kind of all over the place. Um, so the best thing I can say is there's no clear detrimental effects, but it's basically anybody's guess. Mm -hmm. Again, there I wouldn't stress too much. Try it out if you dislike it. Don't do it. Like I'm not pushing this concept on you. If you if you even think that it might that might be detrimental to your sleep, don't do it. But personally, I'm not worried, and I've seen a lot of people do this now, both in studies and in practice. One more question I often get is like, don't I have to wake up in the middle of the night if I drink a protein shake uh, before bed? Well, yeah, yes, it's more likely to happen that if you don't drink a protein shake before bed. But uh, in our studies, I would say maybe one in eh, somewhere between one in five and one in 10 subjects uh, wakes up to pee. But I don't know what that number would have been. I've never documented it. Like I've never done a questionnaire, like how, how it is in general in them. But it's like one to five people wake up. 
but I know a lot of people who wake up to pee in the middle of the night who don't drink anything before bed. So it's definitely not that it's a guarantee that you have to wake up and pee when you take a pre-sleep shake. Um, is there anything? Oh yeah, maybe. And this is also a very practical thing. Um, so I discussed that in our culture, most people have a dinner and then don't eat for like 12 uh, or more hours. If you have a different culture, there are cultures where their biggest meal is just before bed. Well, I'm not saying, well, if you have your biggest meal at 10 o'clock in the evening, and then you go to sleep at 11 o'clock, please don't take another protein shake because your dinner is going to be digesting during most of the evening. Uh, you're, you, you essentially already have pre-sleep protein. Uh, it's not like the supplement form is the magic thing here. Supplements, at least in our culture, are convenient for this because you don't have to do dishes with your last meal and uh, you don't introduce a lot of calories. You just have your protein. Um, but if you have a culture or you just like to have your dinner very late, then there's really no need to supplement uh, on top of that. Those are some of the yeah things that come to mind of the the practical questions that I often get. No, that's that's great. I think that that covers all the things that I was also having in mind. Um, maybe we then next to these practical or in contrast to these practical recommendations, um, something that I find interesting to to hear your perspective on because I always know that or I, I notice that in in your group you are always doing these acute studies. So, of course, by having only the acute perspective, you can't say much, okay, would that kind of intervention on a regular basis, so supplementing in combination with, with exercise, may it be endurance or resistance uh, training, does that really translate in the long term to muscle hypertrophy, strength gains, or in the, in the, in the context of endurance exercise uh, increases in an endurance capacity, mitochondrial um, genesis, and so on. So, what's what's your perspective on on this acute versus what would actually happen in the long term? It's uh, uh, you said something that a lot of people uh, say, which always kind of makes me smile. As where people say like, "Oh yeah, you're you guys do a lot of these acute studies," which is true, but in my mind maybe our long-term studies are actually more exceptional than our acute studies because we always have long-term studies going on as well but just by nature you do less of them because they take a lot longer right yeah, that's but, true. Uh, when we do long-term studies i've never been in charge of a long like i've helped others i've never been in charge so i can say this because it's i'm i'm not talking about myself but our long-term studies are like really strong compared to what other people do. Like other people do an eight-week study and then they say, we do long-term studies. That's more useful than these acute studies. I'm like, well, our long-term studies are six months. So yeah, our group is absolutely not saying that acute is better than long-term. We like both. Um, we're just saying, if you do long-term studies, please don't do six, eight-week studies where you have poor statistical power, et cetera, do one real long-term study, but that's a little bit of a side rent. Of course, you can do all the acute studies that you want. If you never validate it in a long-term study, uh, it, it remains a lot of speculation. So 
to give an example on this topic, we did an acute, uh, uh, sorry, well, we did acute, but we also did a long-term study where, again, these are always easier to describe, no crazy cows involved. So one group just did uh, resistance training three times uh, a week, uh, and the other group uh, did well the same. But then one group got uh, a placebo supplement before sleep. The other group got a protein supplement for sleep. No surprise, both groups have muscle mass and strength gains, but the group with extra protein simply uh, grew more. So this is an example where the acute data very clearly translate to the long-term data. Now, the question is, is that always the case? No, not necessarily. And that's the, the issue there is that a lot of people want to simplify muscle protein synthesis. Oh, that's a marker of muscle growth, but it's not. It's a marker of multiple things. One of those is muscle growth. So to give you an example, if someone increases in muscle, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make it a little bit more extensive because I like talking about this topic. So let's say we go to the gym and we do a few sets of very high rep push-ups, and then we flex, look in the mirror. We think we're awesome uh, because our chests are pumped. Did we have muscle growth of our chest? Well, what would you say? Would you say yes, or would you say, well, that's a pump. That's I don't consider that muscle growth. You you want my personal yeah comment on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro probably not. So it's just a temporarily. <laughs> blood flow to the muscle it didn't actually grow right and you can come up with other examples you can play around with your hydration status and with your glycogen none of those things i think can be considered true muscle growth they're just a transient phenomena so what is true muscle growth well that's an increase in the muscle protein that is something that doesn't change like you can't manipulate in in seconds or minutes so a true muscle growth is an increase in muscle protein that simply cannot happen without muscle protein synthesis being greater than muscle protein breakdown over time. There's no other way. That alone shows that muscle protein synthesis has to be crucial for muscle growth. However, that's not the same as, oh, I see an increase in muscle protein. This must mean I grow. If everything else is the same, then yes, but like you kind of need to have a decent understanding of physiology to know in a study, is everything else the same? So a simple example, we go to the gym, we do one set with our left arm, one set of biceps curls with our left arm, 30 sets with our right arm. Well, yes, the right arm is going to have more muscle protein synthesis but there's also going to be a lot more muscle damage. So there's a lot more to repair. So not everything is the same. So that's an example where if you just say, well, the right arm had higher muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, but there was more going on there. So if you control a study in such a way that most things are the same, then yes, it should translate in more muscle mass. But very often, not everything is the same, especially with if you comp compare different types of exercise, a lot of things are going on. If you compare, for example, protein versus no protein, then really the only difference is an increase in muscle protein synthesis. And that should in time, uh, over time, contribute to muscle mass. But even there, there are, it's also not necessarily true. For example, uh, let's say that 
pre-sleep protein stimulates muscle protein synthesis by 20% over the evening, then people assume, well, muscle growth is 20% higher. Well, no, because only, let's say it's stimulated over, for easy math, it's stimulated muscle protein synthesis over eight hours during the night. We measure seven and a half hours. So let's say that's 20% higher, but that means over that simple act of pre-sleep protein would only stimulate 7% muscle protein synthesis over a 24-hour period because was it 20% over an eight-hour period? So over 24, it's divided by three. So it's only six to seven percent. So there's just tons of these very small examples where people try to translate them one-to-one that doesn't necessarily uh, work. Another example kind of relevant to this study with endurance exercise, you stimulate uh, muscle protein synthesis, but a part of it is mitochondrial protein synthesis. So if you just add them all up together and you say, well, uh, why, why are we not growing? It's because something else is happening. Muscle protein synthesis is an adaptation to something, but it's not necessarily muscle growth. That's one of the possible adaptations. So yes, it's absolutely crucial for muscle growth, but it's more than that. And it might contribute to other well, useful things, but not necessarily muscle growth. And then maybe one more, one final example is, unfortunately, you cannot eat yourself towards bodybuilding status. So protein very clearly stimulates muscle protein synthesis. Based on that, you would think, well, uh, if I then just consume endless amounts of protein, ultimately I'm going to become a bodybuilder, right? But uh, if you do not do any exercise, your body starts noticing like, okay, there's no need, there's no challenge to my body. So there's no need to keep building muscle because why why would I? So without an exercise challenge, protein on its own is not gonna do anything. So yes, if you give someone who doesn't do any exercise, you give them protein, you'll see an increase in muscle protein synthesis, but the body will adapt to that. It's not gonna keep responding the same way because at some point your body just says like, yeah, we've grown a little bit, but there's no use for this extra muscle. So the short answer is no, you cannot always say, oh, muscle protein synthesis went up. Does there will be muscle growth? Though if you have sufficient expertise, you can predict it with very high certainty whether or not it would in that condition. Um, for, for the people, I would just say muscle protein synthesis is adaptation and various adaptations are possible. One of them is muscle growth. Yeah, and I think if you you did a great job here with separating that and showing that I was not too aware of these long-term studies, if I'm honest, but just because your daytime business within the group is mostly the acute study, so I don't yeah. notice them too much indeed. So to give a quick example, for example, uh, Milan is doing, I think... Milan Betts, yeah. yeah. I don't know how long his study is. I think 20 weeks, for example, but he's training everyone at UM Sports. So he's not using our labs. Uh, so that's maybe why you don't see them. Uh, but the same thing is true internationally. There's like 20 studies a year about muscle protein synthesis and only one study that's long-term, but they're an equal amount of work, so to speak. It's just like we do as much, if not more, long-term studies studies and other labs is just that we do so much of this other stuff uh, on top of it. But I really like both. So you want to do the acute studies because 
again, super expensive and everything, but relatively soon you can test out various ideas and then you can, uh, once you have promising concepts, you can try them out in long-term studies. I always dislike it when people completely dismiss any field of research. Like I'm not like, I don't want to be an epidemiologist, but when people say that has zero value, I just get mad. It's like, no, your job as a researcher is to take everything and take like, what can we learn from that? Okay, let's test that out in this type of research. Oh, this is too invasive for humans. Let's try to do it in a red study. And together you get a much more comprehensive understanding like no type of research should be dismissed and when two types of things don't align it's the laziest weakest thing to say like oh then that other type must be wrong no you're not you're we're not understanding why this doesn't translate to that so we need to understand it better you can't say it doesn't translate so that thing is wrong no i, I completely get that i think you you have a good point there so John, so usually I, I end the, the podcast with a more personal perspective. So a few questions on, on that level. And that first one would be, where is your research going in the future? And also what is uh, up there on the horizon for you to achieve career-wise? Well, at this point, I just want to do cool studies like i'm i'm pretty obsessed with my work so i would like to say i'm doing it to make the whole world better that's how it started but at least in this phase i am just obsessed and it's like a little computer game i'm trying to do for myself almost <laughs> like of course i know it's useful for the world but to be completely honest i'm just obsessed i want i want answers <laughs> um yeah. but of course uh everything is going to be useful so uh, as we discussed initially, I uh, really focused on sports nutrition, basically because of the guys in the gym. But right now I'm uh, setting up a study to uh, see how much protein people in the ICU should consume. So literally the most extreme <laughs> sick people versus the other extreme, the athletes who try, yeah, basically the most fit people in the world um so that's just a interesting evolution that uh now i just like to understand protein metabolism and uh try it out in a lot of different uh, populations and if something works in athletes can uh, people in the hospital or people uh older people uh benefit for it from it for example then if i have like a goal it's not like it's not necessarily my goal goal but it is something cool uh if i can at least contribute to it is again because of my background in the sports world if i would dare say the recommended daily allowance for protein is 0.8 gram per kilogram per day and they're like what does that mean i'm like well that's how much protein you need to eat to not lose any lean body mass they're like huh? I don't care. How much do I need to eat to optimize everything? So the RDA is like the uh, the minimal amount that you need, but that's what every dietitian is taught. Protein, eat, well, every nutrient, eat the RDA. But that's like teaching students like what they need to know for a five, well, to pass a course, like the minimum amount, like why, why? Like it's a good thing to know, but that should not be the aim. So my goal is to uh, move at least that people know 
what the optimal amount is. Like what's the optimal amount for people in the gym, for people who are aging? Is it different between males and females? That is at least a topic of conversation rather than, oh, protein should be the minimal amount. No, what's your goal? Oh, for your goal, you need to look at the optimal amount of protein. That needs to be part of the conversation. And then um, career-wise, um, I don't know. I don't know why people would uh, care about my career. I don't even... Well, I, I just try to do cool studies and I I hope that my career is like a, a side product from it, so to speak. Uh, it's not like... It would be cool if I'm a professor one day, but it's not necessarily my goal. I, I would love to have stayed PhD student my entire life, just run the study myself. That's fine. I also wouldn't mind just sitting in my room, designing a few studies and let other people do it. I, I just want the answers. So uh, we'll see what, what function best fits that over time. Yeah. No, I, I like this obsession perspective. I, I think uh, it's similar for, for me, but not all the time. So I, I admire that for you, this obsession is really the dominant driver of, of most of the things that you are doing. And another question with respect to your personal implementation of your research findings into your life. I remember back in the days when I started my PhD, I saw you always working out in the morning. I think this is um, the, the, it belongs to the past, right? It's, it's not <laughs> something that you do anymore that uh, on such a disciplined level. Uh, are you at least still on constant protein shakes or are you having your own pre-sleep nutrition routine based on your studies? So to share with listeners how uh, little Yorn or the tall Yorn is is doing um, in his private life with, with, with respect to his research topics. Uh, well, I'm doing horrible. Um, <laughs> so again, I got into this all because, you know, I wanted to not be skinny. And uh, the people in the gym said that nutrition was also interesting. And then um, when I was studying nutrition, I did it because, you know, it, it, it was interesting to me. But, you know, in college, you have quite some time or at least... I had quite some time, so I was always training, uh, like trying to eat as good as possible, made a reasonable amount of gains. Like I wasn't going to win a bodybuilding show, but at least I wasn't the skinny kid anymore. But then as I uh, started going into research, like it's kind of, well, it's not kind of, it's just very competitive. And it's just the more time you spend on it, the more opportunities you get. And so uh, more like fitness was always like a hobby, but uh, it's not going to pay my bills. While for research, like it's weird to say about myself, but like I, I do think I have a bit of talent. So it was just way more worthwhile to spend like as much time as possible in work, like more than 40 hours, because I know there's going to be a payoff because I'm, you know, I, I do think I, I'm doing well. Well, Every hour in the gym, for the most part, it's it's not going to change my life. Like maybe I look a little bit bigger uh, or a little bit skinnier, but probably no one will notice anyway. Um, so it's just uh, the art of war. Just focus on your strengths. Don't try to focus on all your weaknesses. So that's kind of the philosophy I did. So unfortunately, since college, I got just very consistently smaller and smaller. Uh, just... <laughs> I still have periods where for like two months, I train six times a week uh, every day, 
but I, I've like a very clear priority list in my head and uh, work is one of them above exercise. So it's quite, uh, I believe I haven't trained uh, even once for in the last three, uh, three weeks, which even as someone who's not necessarily interested in exercise is horrible. Like at least try to do it once or twice just for hell, right? But that's yeah. that's kind of my personality. I am very, yeah, let's call it extreme. So I really like to do like 80 hour work weeks or I do like the minimal amount, minimal amount of effort to not get fired. That's just how my personality is. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm bad at moderation and it's, it's the same with trading. So when I was obsessed about trading, uh, it was cool. I made, you know, decent, decent uh, gains, but um, yeah, it, it was a fun hobby, done it for a long time. But then you ask about uh, the protein shakes. So that's the thing is like, I consider like protein shakes like a bad habit that I still have. So I just always have like protein around because I still have the illusion. No, no, no. Now, the next year, I'm going to lift for the gains, <laughs> right? Like I still have that illusion and I've had that for, I think, so the last 10 years, I've just consistently got in worse shape since since my, let's call it peak. But still, I still have the illusion. No, no, no. Now I'm going to build a streak like you you wouldn't believe. Uh, so I always have protein around and I still take my shakes, even when I haven't trained for like three weeks now. So yes, I quite often take a shake, even though I haven't trained in a while. So it's kind of, yeah, my, my habits in that sense are quite funny and not necessarily uh, what I would recommend to others. But I know myself, I'm perfectly happy with it. I just jump from extremes to extremes and that's just how I am and I uh, embrace it. And that is, uh, I think, completely sufficient for me also as for my last question that we can thereby skip to, to have a personal funny anecdote. So that's <laughs> that's uh, fulfilled by by this little story. I liked it a lot. Um, so lastly, Jorn, can, how can people get in contact with you on social media and um, yeah, just uh, take that as an opportunity to promote all of the things that you are doing outside academia, I would say, or in terms of social outreach? Yeah, so on uh, on Twitter, you can find me by my name, Jorn Trommel, uh, which you're not going to remember, but luckily everywhere else i'm basically everywhere else you can find me as uh, nutrition tactics and yeah i do quite a lot on social media uh like i post a lot of infographics and stuff like that because i remember when i was in like my college phase and i tried to read as much uh, about everything you know i i never really found stuff like it was just musclehead04 on bodybuilding.com said something i'm like i don't know this is probably a 15 year old kid saying something and occasionally i saw an abstract well i, I don't have to tell your audience what an abstract is but basically the summary of uh, of a study and i was like what is this weirdly formatted text like i didn't <laughs> know really what it was and so I just grew up with like a, a lack of like the type of material I needed. Like I was in college, so I was somewhat educated, but not good enough to try to read papers myself. Uh, and kind of like with the sports nutrition master that I'm teaching now, I kind of enjoy that I've now created what I wanted back in the day. And uh, another reason why I do it is just like, again, uh, so the honest truth is I do it for my obsession. Like I want answers. 
But I know that if I post something about my study and then a lot of people are going to say, that's so cool. That's so cool. I'm like, okay, okay. I'll, I'll do another month of 80 hours a week because clearly I'm helping the world. <laughs> but it's like, it's like, F, it's after the fact. So I'm just doing the study for myself. And then once it's, once I have the data and then you're the face like, Oh, now I have to write it down. <laughs> I, already, I, already, I, already, I already got like my answer. But then I start thinking like, oh, no, no, no. People, when I explain this and this, they're going to be excited. And then when you see like cool response to your study, you're like, okay, okay. It's, I'm definitely not just doing it for myself. So yeah, I like to be uh, on social media and just uh, share content. So wherever, uh, whatever people hang out, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, uh, I'm everywhere as Nutrition Tactics. Yeah, great. And I, I can definitely recommend listeners to take a look at the infographics um, that Jorn is creating on a very regular basis. I think these are really great resources and um, yeah, maybe stimulate you to then read deeper into the, the papers that are usually behind these infographics. And I guess with that, Jorn, um, I would like to thank you for taking the time. Yeah, as, as soon as, as you have more data, as I know there are more in the pipeline, we might get you on the show again, I guess. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. That was the second part series with Jorn Trommel from Maastricht University, colleague of mine researching next door, so to speak. And I hope you enjoyed it and learned even more about muscle protein synthesis, building up on the knowledge you already had from episode number 12 with Cass Fuchs from that very same research group. So if you haven't listened to that one and are hooked now on the topic, you can go back to that episode, episode number 12. In general, I would like to remind you that you find all the references to, to the scientific literature that we are discussing here on any episode you find that on 247muscle.com also with all the contact details of the people that are on the show and with that i would like to close this two-part series and leave it open for now what is coming next i have a few things scheduled but i can't promise the order of who's gonna show up in the next episode so stay tuned and let me know if you have any suggestions moving forward down the road.